Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. We are starting a new series, and it's a series in the book of Thessalonians. Um, and we're going to be reading the first 10 verses of the letter to the Thessalonians. But before we do that, we're going to go to the book of Acts, if you do have a Bible with you. And we're going to go to the book of Acts, and we're going to... Um, Look at the first 10 verses of chapter 17, which is the story of how the church in Thessalonica got started. So what's great when you read the New Testament, a lot of the letters that are written, whether it's to the Galatians or the Colossians or the Thessalonians or the Corinthians, you can go back in the book of Acts and you can read about how those churches started and what went on. So you get a bit of context and understand things. It fills out your kind of understanding. So do 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 that. It's not every, not you won't be able to find stuff on every one, but you will do on a lot of them. And so Acts chapter 17 uh, gives us the, the first 10 verses will, will give us Really, the kind of we'll get a sense of the the kind of the fiery scenario in which the church in Thessalonica um, was was planted. So let's just pray, then we'll get into the scriptures. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you, so many of us in this room at different times in our lives have been so impacted by scripture, and we think about whether it's someone preaching or just our own personal reading of the Bible or listening to someone on the podcast or. Whatever it might be, Lord, someone praying for us and, Lord, them just bringing a scripture that spoke right into our situation. And we thank you for this precious thing that you've given to us, Lord, which is unchanging and speaks of your unchangeable character, your unchanging nature. And Lord, we just pray as we're in your word today, we pray move among us by your spirit. Pray our lives would be touched in really wonderful ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, Acts 17. Now, uh, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica, it's still, the city today is still there, but it's called Thessaloniki. It's so very similar. Um, it's quite unusual for um, some, a city to be um, there this much after that, and a very similar sort of name. And it's in northern, uh, northern Greece. And so this whole area we're thinking about today, you're, you're talking Greece, Albania, um, what is now North Macedonia, that's the, that's the area that, we are, that we're thinking of. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taken some wicked men of the rabble. They, there's always a rabble around. You can always find some wicked men from the rabble. Um, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason's received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go, and the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Um, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, and as we find out, got on and carried on doing exactly the same thing. 
for somewhere else. So I want to just bring out a few things from this story here just to give a bit of context. We're going to be working through 1 Thessalonians between now and Christmas. It's probably not the most famous epistle. Um, many of you, if you've been a Christian a while, will probably be more familiar with Ephesians, say, or Philippians um, than you will be Thessalonians. So it would be good for us to become familiar with it. This is the situation in which the church was started there. So just, just going to pull out a few things just to make note of them. Number one, that you've got, you've got um, some Jews believed the message. They went to the synagogue, some Jews, some devout Greeks. Now, you think, well, how did the Greeks hear about this? If they're going to the synagogue, well, it could be two reasons. It could be that um, back in the day in the synagogues, what it was, um, you had a lot of Greeks and they're called, they were called God-fearers. And they, um, they weren't your usual kind of um, idolatrous kind of Gentile because the Gentile was just full of idolatry. These Greeks, they'd seen something in the Jewish religion that they, that, they, that they liked. They'd seen something that appealed to them, whether it was the ethics, the morals, the monotheism, which is very, very, almost pretty much unique. And so what, they were around the synagogue, but they hadn't yet converted and become Jews in a spiritual sense, but they were interested. So they would be around the, the world of the synagogue, and so they could hear there. It also could be that knowing Paul, he wasn't just preaching in the synagogues. So when we go to Athens, we find out that he took himself to the marketplace and he just walked around there talking to whoever he could about Jesus. So maybe that was going on. And we also read of some leading women in the, in the city that were also impacted by the gospel and joined. So we've got a real mixed bag here. Um, we're told they joined Paul and Silas. Now, I want to just take your attention to that to show you this. In the Bible, believing in the gospel means that you join the people of God. It's not just, oh, I believe in Jesus now, you know, I want to carry on in my own way. No, the Bible knows nothing of that. You join and you are connected to the family of God and to the people of God. So they hear the gospel, they believe it, and the next thing we're told is they joined Paul and Silas. So wherever you're at today, if you are here and you're a believer, I would say make sure you're connected. Make sure you can say, this is who I'm joined to. Okay? We're primarily joined to Jesus, okay? but we work that out by being joined to brothers and sisters. We're told that it was jealousy on the part of, of Jews who didn't believe the gospel that led to the trouble. So it was the success of the gospel led to jealousy. Now, we haven't known much of that in our nation for a little while now. Um, we were at a bit of a low ebb in terms of the amount of people that are turning to Jesus Christ. But when the gospel goes out in power and many begin to get saved and come to know Christ, often there is a, a jealousy that's stirred up um, for all kinds of reasons. People are complex, but there's a jealousy here. And here you can imagine you've got these Jews in their synagogue and people are being taken out of that world and being brought into this new world of Jews and Gentiles believing together in the Messiah that's come. And this sense of, uh, we don't believe this, but it feels like we're missing out. And so there's an uproar that's created by the success of the gospel. And just again to say, don't, don't be surprised if the success of the gospel in your own life leads to jealousy at times. Don't, don't dampen down what Jesus has done in your life for fear that someone might be jealous. Don't, don't do that. Now obviously be humble, but don't hide what the Lord has done in case it bothers someone. Because actually, sometimes you start bothered, but then actually God uses that. And it can be the beginning of a journey to know the Lord. So, you know, in that sense, it's just, just, take, just showing you things to take notice of here. Um, love, I love the description of the believers. These men who have turned the world upside down. 
what a great, it probably wasn't meant as a compliment. Um, but I think we read it and we go, wow, that's amazing. Look at the impact they were having. They, their reputation had proceeded and they were called those who were turning the world upside down. They weren't keeping, this wasn't a nice a little kind of harmless thing. This was revolutionary, the message that they were preaching. And also I wanted to point your attention to this. You, you probably wouldn't know this unless, you're a, unless you are a historian. But um, this part of the world... For the, for the 200 years or so before, had been really tumultuous, particularly around who was in charge. And because their, their background was Alexander the Great a few hundred years before, and they'd had some pretty um, impressive kings after that, but the rising up of the Roman Empire had created real trouble, and there'd been some brutal wars in the run-up. And, so, and what had happened is in, in, in this part of the world, in, in Macedonia and, and, and in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, there was this strange thing going on where you had a city that had become very, very, um, very, very connected to and committed to the Roman Empire, particularly the rich. So, so it had become a city that had been granted special privileges because of how loyal they were to Rome. But it was also a city with this undercurrent of this history of Alexander the Great and these great Macedonian kings. And there had been numbers of kind of revolts. And so the whole thing of we want a king was also there in the undercurrent. So you've got this thing going on here. And then we are told, it's no surprise that we're told, that um, they're saying there's another king, Jesus. So the gospel message they are preaching is getting right into the psychological heart of this place. It's relevant, right? And this is what, um, this is what one of the commentators says. As previously noted, free cities, Thessalonica was a free city, could govern themselves according to their ancestral custom and were exempt from tribute to Rome. So they didn't have to keep paying loads of, um, loads of goods and money to Rome every year. Such communities could mint their own coins and educate their young people according to established custom. They were not obliged to garrison Roman troops within their walls. Such honours were conventionally granted only to people and cities which had displayed remarkable loyalty to the interests of the Roman people. Thessalonica had aligned herself with the interests of Rome and had reaped the benefits. The autonomy and the financial freedom from Rome she enjoyed would have made the citizens and officials jealous to guard her status. The, the intimation that there was another king who challenged Caesar's authority went down hard in Thessalonica. The accusation echoes the Macedonians' longing for and the Romans' fear of a revived monarchy. So notice this. They go to Thessalonica... And either Paul is preaching deliberately into the heart of this thing as another king. So he's, he's, he's shaping his gospel preaching to get to, to, to ruffle the feathers, to bother people. Okay? Or maybe they're just hearing it that way. Either way, what is clear and obvious is that Paul isn't just preaching, Jesus loves you. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. There's a king. There's a new king over heaven and earth. And it's time to bow the knee. It's a message about the kingdom. We must make sure that we reckon with this and make sure that the gospel doesn't become diluted to something merely um, kind of that makes people feel nice or is sentimental. You're proclaiming a new kingdom with a new king. It should ruffle people's feathers. What would the equivalent be for us? I think the equivalent for us is when we preach the gospel is we talk about the dethroning of self. That's, that's where the gospel is going to hit, impact people when you, you talk about the lordship of Christ. He is the king of love, but he is the Lord as well. 
and, and in following him and giving your life to him, the self is dethroned. In an individualistic, secular society where self is God, self is king or queen, that is really going to have an impact on one or the other. And I think we need to think about this and um, make sure that we are speaking this message into the heart of where we are and let, 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 leaving the outcomes of God. We, we don't control the outcomes, but it's important that we don't hide the kind of powerful, life-changing truth. People, people in our culture are literally dying on their feet because of the worship of self. It's, a, it's an awful, toxic vacuum that is never satisfied and never satisfies. And, and until we begin to see the desperate state of that and align our sharing of the gospel with it, we can be in danger of not actually speaking into the heart of what people need to hear. Final thing to say is this, is that it appears that Paul and Silas perhaps were in Thessalonica for no more than three weeks and they left the church. Now it could have been a bit longer than that, but it wasn't long. We told he went in there for three, three Sabbaths and then there seems like trouble comes and we've got to get out of here. And so we're going to turn to Thessalonians now. And this letter was written as a result of, um, you'll find out later as we go through the series, but, but Paul had sent Timothy back essentially to make sure they were okay. I think he's writing this from Corinth and he wants to make sure that is, is the church still there? Because it was such, it was carnage. <laughs> we preached, lots of people believed, then there was a riot and we had to go, <gasps> how are they doing? So let's go, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 1 to 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's about 100 sermons in there. <laughs> that is what you call densely, densely packed truth in scripture. I want to just bring out um, three main points from this, um, I've spent a long time also on introduction, so we don't have loads of time, but I want to bring these three points home. And one of them is that it's quite a controversial one, theology. I want to talk about election, just for a few minutes. The idea that before we choose God, he chooses us. This is controversial because no one quite knows how it works, and it's mysterious, and it raises all kinds of questions, and it can divide and polarise people on a, on a matter. But I wanted to just look at Paul. Just, let's just stay in the text. It's really interesting what he says. We know that he's chosen you because. And then he, he says three things that for Paul is evidence, this is, God, this, is God, this is God choosing you. And it's a helpful thing for us to reflect upon. He says, because... Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 
When someone is genuinely saved by God, when someone is born again, when, 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 when God calls someone, opens the eyes of their heart to see it, chooses them, elects them, draws them into his family, the gospel isn't just words. There are three things here, Paul highlights, that happen where you know this is God at work. Number one, power. When the gospel comes into our life, it comes with power, life-changing power. Life change, i.e. what I mean by that is, is that there were things that you were previously gripped by, dark things, ungodly things, unrighteous things, whatever they were, lust, appetites, etc., etc., that kind of governed your life. But the gospel came and power came with it. Power to be able to walk away from those things. Power to be able to leave those things behind. Gospel power, such revelation came, you realise I have died with Christ. I've been buried with him through baptism. I'm no longer that person. I'm no longer that sinner. I'm now been born again. I'm righteous. I have died. He died and I died with him. And there's power of the Spirit comes to enable us to leave those things behind. Now, I'm not suggesting for one moment that we never battle with those things. Of course we do. But there is a victory that is given to us in them through the gospel. There's power. Paul says we see the power of the gospel at work in your life. We can see it. That word, it means force. It means that it means previously I felt that I couldn't do anything about that. Now, through this message, there's a power to be able to say, I'm not going to live under that. I'm not going to be dictated to by that. That's not going to rule me anymore. I'm under new, I'm under new lordship. And then he says, and the, and the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that he actually separates. And elsewhere, he'll talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. But here he says, the power and the Holy Spirit. So we can, we can say here, he's definitely talking about the fact that when these people heard the gospel, it, what, it, the, the, the work of the very third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, was seen so evidently in their lives. They had come alive in Christ. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit leads us into truth. He shows us Jesus and, and the work of the spirit just brings liberty, brings hunger and understanding of the word of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's what he does. He brings it through the gospel and you go, there's a spiritual thing that's gone on there. It's not just, oh, I believe in Jesus now. No, I believe it. I've seen it. I get it. New life in the Holy Spirit and then full conviction. There's, a, there's, a, there's an assurance, a persuasion. I found the truth. Sometimes people find Christians to be a bit annoying, dare I say it, and a bit arrogant because they're not interested in searching anymore spiritually. They're not interested. And it rubs people up the wrong way. They're like, why? why? And it's like, literally, I've found it. I've literally found it. So all of that kind of sense of questions and quests and spiritual hunger that there was before, it's been satisfied. So I, can't, I would be pretending if I said, yeah, I'm going to go on a spiritual search. I found it. And so actually what it is, it, it's not arrogant. It's just a reflection of the fact that when, when God moves in gospel power in your life, it just brings such assurance and confidence that you know it's true. Now, again, I'm not saying that you never experience doubts. But I would say in my, in my own you know, Christian walk, 30 plus years, you go through seasons of doubts and, and, and that, that's, that, yeah, we're, 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 we'll be honest about it, we're human. Maybe some terrible things happen in, in, in 
the world. You think, how can that? Or in your own life, or, or this prayer doesn't get answered. Or, and you go, ah, and you begin to... But what I've found is underneath all of those doubts, when I get through and I try and just bring God into them, what's going on? And I'm questioning underneath them. When I get through them all, there's something deeper than all of them sitting there. It's assurance of the gospel. It's like, I believe it. I, be- I know because I know because I know. It's the witness of the Holy Spirit that goes deeper than all of that. And Paul is saying, I can see these three things in you. We saw power, life-changing power. We saw the reality of the life of the Spirit. We saw full assurance. God's chosen you. God has chosen you. It's the choice of God. Now, this thing, it can unsettle some because you might be sitting there going, I don't know if that's me. Is that me? Well, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a scripture where, right at the start of Peter's second letter, he was writing to the, to, the, to, the, to the believers and he says this. He says to them, he's talking to them about, um, I wish I could find it. Where is it? <laughs> Where's Peter gone? Um, he says right near the start of his letter, verse 5, he says, uh, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control. And your self-control with steadfastness. And your steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. Having forgotten, he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. To confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. Now, it's a really interesting phrase. He's kind of doing something quite unusual. He's saying, listen, you're a believer. He's writing to the believers. He's saying, add these things to your faith. Build, build them in. Grow, develop, enjoy exploring all that God has brought for you. Add these things into your life. He says, because if you're lacking these things, like... Something's going wrong, like you're forgetting where you've been brought out from. You've, you've kind of got dull, you've kind of been led off to the side. And, and you, and you, and, and, but he said, but if, if, he's saying, if you add these qualities, what, he says, what you're doing in a funny sort of way, you are making your calling and your election sure. When you feel in your heart, uh, if you're a believer and you feel in your heart a bit of an indignation, maybe as I've preached, you've gone, why isn't there more power in my life? And you feel an indignation, and you start thinking, and then you can go two ways of it. You can go, maybe I'm not, maybe God hasn't chosen me. Right? Or you can go, something in me is going. And a godly indignation. Lord, I want my power. Yeah? That is the response of the new heart. I want more, I want more of your, your power, Lord. I want more of the spirit in my life. God, I want more assurance in my life. And so Peter is saying, build just, just. Pursue God. And in doing so, what is happening is you are demonstrating through that pursuit that God has indeed called you and chosen you. Because if he hadn't, you wouldn't be feeling that. Yeah? So even, when, even in our down moments as believers, when we feel, oh, I'm not doing well there or whatever, that sense of, oh, I wish I was, that's a new heart. People that don't know Jesus don't feel that. Yeah? So it's a sign of an heart. But, but be galvanized into godly activity. Don't be, don't be paralyzed into over analysis, be galvanized. So, God, I want to seek you because I know that if you've chosen me, there's power available for me 
in the Holy Spirit. I've heard a lot of stories of wonderful miracles and healings over this summer, just in conversation. Just some of them really dramatic, some of them not so dramatic, but just a really wonderful one recently of a married couple who they were both kind of, um, they had to be very, very careful with their diet because that one had the kind of lactose thing, one had the gluten thing, and they, you know, and it was just, you know, they got used to it, but they had to be really, really careful with their diet. And then um, in a very normal church service, someone just felt to pray for people with, you know, th- th- those kinds of conditions and, and prayed for them. And then this married couple thought they would test it out by eating a fully loaded pizza or something. <laughs> totally healed. Just totally healed. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, just completely, you know, and, you know, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not someone, you know, it's not, it's not the blind recovering sight, is it? But if your life has been shaped by these things, it's really wonderful. Simple prayer in the name of Jesus. And, uh, and had, I mean, we've got so many stories of things like that. Um, I, I do feel maybe the Lord wants to just provoke our faith a bit. I say, come on, guys. Come on. Don't be on the back foot. Don't get into the paralysis of analysis. Believe me, for good things, because I think you know we see here that it's part of the part of the blessing of um, of being chosen by God. Amen. Second thing he says, I want to talk about joy and affliction. It's really interesting that he says to the Thessalonians, he talks about their joy in the midst of affliction. Now we remember the story that I read you what it was like when the gospel came to them. You know, it was it was tough, but he you know it was straight away they're in the fires of persecution and even like a kind of a riot, you might say. So, But he says to them, he's, he says, um, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So you, you became like us and like Jesus, imitators. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Wonderful. So it was the same for Jesus. We're told of Jesus, he was, he was anointed with the oil of joy above his companions. Jesus was the most joyful of all the disciples. Did, is that your Jesus? Because the Bible says that's what Jesus is like. Okay? The most joy, anointed with the oil of gladness above your companions. He was the example of joy. Okay? Wonderful. But actually he knew a lot of affliction. A lot of people were constantly making things up about him, trying to trap him. And obviously we can see if one, of his, one of his closest betrayed him. We, we know how it all ended. So a life, actually a very afflicted life, but it's extraordinary joy. And you find the same, Paul says, also you became uh, imitators of us. This is really what the apostles experienced. You find times where they are kind of, in Acts chapter 5, they're, they're beaten and commanded not to talk about Jesus anymore. They're, they're released and we're told that they, they rejoice and they've been counted worthy to suffer for the name. Worthy, we suffered for the name of Jesus. What joy that brings. It's not masochism. It's awareness that there is one greater. And if, 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 if someone slights you for his name, you are blessed. If someone rejects you for his name, you are blessed. If someone maligns you for his name, you are blessed. There's a weird kind of joy that comes in those moments. Strange sort of joy. We used to run kids clubs on local estates and um, back in South London um, years ago. And I remember, I remember once just, you know, a couple of us getting attacked by a kid. It was really, I mean, it was bad, you know, what, what, what. It was a weird sort of joy walking back to the church building. I can't. It's supernatural. It's like that was. I wouldn't have chosen that, right? But but it happened to us because we were talking about Jesus. It changed it. Do you know what I mean? You go. It's just different. It's not when people don't like you because you're annoying, or you're unreliable, or you're abrasive. It's not that. It's for His name. There's a weird kind of supernatural glory in it all, and it's the same as what they had. And uh, you know, Paul says in. 
Philippians 1 verse 29, you've been appointed not to just believe in him, but to suffer for him. You've been appointed not just to believe in him, but to suffer for him and for his name. It's part of what we're called to. Those of you in the room that are Christians, those of you in the room that aren't yet Christians, part of being a Christian is you suffer for the name of Jesus. Okay? We're not salesmen here. Okay, so we're not going to hide the, hide the hard bits. Okay? It's part of it, but it's absolutely glorious. It's a glorious thing because the Bible talks about the fellowship of his sufferings. And what that means is, is that when you suffer on, a, on account of his name, there's a strange and supernatural fellowship that you have with his presence in that. He comes very close and brings extraordinary comfort. And you go, I should be really bothered by this. But strangely, I'm not. I just sense the comfort and the presence of Jesus you know, our suffering saviour who's with us in it. You must remember that the, 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 cross, is a, the cross is an unusual thing in, in the sense that in, on the one hand, Jesus' suffering on the cross was completely unique, meaning that none of us ever have to go through that. He went through that so we could be forgiven, amen? And we rejoice in that, don't we? But he also said, but he also went through that to give us a model of suffering in the Christian life. He said, pick up your cross daily. There is, there's the cross, unique, but there's our cross that we pick up daily. And part of that is, is, is suffering. But it's not a somber, sad, it's a joy thing. It's joy. Right? It's supernatural, supernatural joy. And it's so important we get our heads around this. Otherwise, what we end up doing is avoiding affliction, avoiding Christian affliction in order to be happy and then having no joy. I'll say that again. You avoid Christian affliction in order to be happy, have a peaceful life, but then there's no joy. Rather than just fully embracing entirely Jesus and all that he is. And you know, leaving the outcomes of how people respond to you with God and knowing extraordinary supernatural joy in that, even if some reject you. That's the biblical pattern. And it's so important in these days that we do that because we will be increasingly, um, increasingly not seen in the best light. Um, this is going to be the way it goes until there is some sort of revival in our nation. And then the third thing, the final thing, is this. I just love the way he describes their conversion. I love the way. Listen to what he says. He says, it's so rich. Just ask yourself, ah, let it be a mirror. He says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Right? You were serving idols that required all kinds of slavish, superstitious fear-based offerings and lifestyle choices off you, okay, you turn from that into the freedom of serving the living God. One who doesn't, doesn't need your, doesn't need all of that because he's really God. So you turn from that to that and to wait for his son from heaven. This is a wonderful, vivid expression of the Christian life. Turned from idols, worshipping futile things that don't satisfy to the living, to serve him, serving him. Okay? So my life is about serving him. I'm not saved by serving him. I'm saved by grace. But it's empowered me to live a life of service. Amen? Amen. Servant king. We live a life of service. We serve in him. Okay? And then within that, we are also waiting. We are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Waiting is a really, really exciting thing when you're waiting for something good. 
It's re- it impacts you emotionally, it impacts you psychologically. You, there's a sense of anticipation. He's describing their Christian life as one of waiting. We're waiting for the sun to come from heaven. We're waiting. Expectation. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I mean, this is like potent, heady stuff. It's not, it's not like, um, you know when you were young and you'd visit some people's houses and they'd have squash and it was really weak. You ever, you ever have that? Think, I can't taste anything. It's coloured water, you know? The, the gospel can become a bit like that. If you take everything out that could offend someone or could upset someone, you end up with this thing. You know, you think, and where's the power? There is no power. You took all the power out of it. Yeah? This is like, this is pure orange juice. Do you know what I mean? This all, it's all in there. Listen, there is wrath There is wrath coming. God is seriously angry about all of the terrible things that go on in this world. You think you're angry at some of the things you read? He is way more angry. How do I know that? Well, think about it. We are corrupt and prone in some ways to some of the things we read about and are disgusted by. Okay? He is utterly pure. Utterly holy. And so when God sees these things, the impact of it on his, on his own being, the impact of those things is absolutely huge. Is that, which is why the Bible talks about a day that is being stored up of extraordinary wrath. Extraordinary wrath. Where every wrong will be put right. Where we're not having to, you're not having to worry. You know, you, you, there's so many things now, aren't there, in the, in the headlines, ethical dilemmas. Who was wrong? What should we do? How should we do this? Should they be sacked? Should they, you know, that sort of stuff. He knows the whole story and he's going to come back and put the whole thing right. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Of course, the tricky thing about it is, is that we recognize that we're not just innocent bystanders. We recognize looking on, oh, I've done that before. Oh, I've said that before. You know, and you go, oh gosh, what am I going to do? And this is where we are so grateful for this gospel. So grateful for the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. That, sorry if I'm boring you. That every single, every single sin, every single regretful thing we've said, thought, or done, even the things, no, you know, things you think, oh no, Lord, I can't believe I, I can't believe I entertained that. that. As we come to the cross with integrity, with sincere faith, and lay it all there, we confess our sins. Guess what? He completely wipes the slate clean. Amen. Completely brings total forgiveness. So we can stand with our head held high in the presence of God and know that while, yes, God is coming as a holy judge to put every wrong right, that by the grace of God and because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the price for my sin has been paid. It's not that God won't pay it. God will overlook it. It's been paid for in the very death of Jesus Christ. The price has been paid. And so justice has been upheld. But God can show mercy to us at the same time. What a gospel. What a message we have. And as we step into this autumn term, and I guess for many of us it feels like a bit of a new year, maybe not for all of us, many of us kind of operate on that kind of, on that kind of rhythm of life. I'd love us to just be enthralled again by this wonderful gospel. I'd love us to be gripped again by it, to think about how can I share this in a way it's really going to get to the heart of the matter. How can I, even in my own life, make sure that by God's grace, I am accessing the power that is available there 
and knowing more and more of what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's all been bought for us, folks. It's not like we have to earn it. It's there. But the Bible does say, seek and you will find. Seek and you will find. I'll spend a little bit of time, I'll just end with this, over the summer, just kind of, just meditating on that little, little phrase there. He who seeks finds. That's an amazing thing to think about. He who, that, I found it so energizing for seeking. Because it's like, I'm going to find. It's not he who seeks might find. He who seeks find, finds. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit and good things to those who ask him? Amen. What do you need? What do you need? Where, what are the things where you're going, that's out of my reach. That's beyond me. That, it's a good thing, but I can't do it. What relationship? You know, that needs fixing. You know God wants that to be different from how it is. It feels like it's going all wrong. God, may God grant you power. May God grant supernatural power in working that thing out as you seek him to do so. Amen. Maybe there is a, a, a sickness that you just think, oh, Lord, it's so holding me back. I, I want to serve you with more energy. Why is, it, why is it like this? May God grant ways through and power and healing. He's full of it, isn't he? He's full of it. 